So, Godfrey, a couple days ago we were talking about what we were going to be uh, maybe discussing in this podcast. And you said Maryland. And and a, and a couple and a couple days ago, that seemed like a pretty good idea because I, you know, I can't wait to, you know, when you said this too, I can't wait to get to the off season where we can really just kind of wander in the woods and and find stuff for an hour and come back. Maryland spending a lot of time on Maryland seemed like a pretty fun idea. Um, and then like thirty eight hundred other bigger things happened since. So hey, what do you want to talk about today? <laughs> do you remember when that Maryland thing happened? It was like three weeks ago, right? Uh... We had a we had a really quiet off season, then we had that really weird week, like with like two weeks to go before the season, where you had the Art Bryle situation. Uh, I guess not the Art Bryle situation, but you know the the, the player being convicted of rape, and then you had the player fines at Virginia Tech, and I, I know there's two or three other, and there were like two or three other stories that happened. We had all of that basically happen in 24 hours, um, after a full weekend of games. It seems like it was a while ago that Texas beat Oklahoma. <laughs> and it was like 48 hours. So we've had a hell of a news cycle. We are not going to um, apply ourselves directly to that news cycle on this program. It's not what you guys listen to us for. Uh, certain stories are evolving. Certain stories we think we know what's going on. Uh, the best that we can do is apply what we do to uh, the places where it fits. So we can't sit here and... Uh, tell you certain things, even though they're, they're hot topics. Um, let's just jump right in. I don't, I don't want to get too esoteric, but um, let's start with Florida. How about that? Sure. Um, Will Greer suspended for PEDs, um, still deciphering. Myself and Kevin Trahan at SP Nation are still deciphering the, the minutia that has allowed Florida basically to have him out for a year and not lose his, uh, his year of eligibility. Um, again, this is, as I prefaced earlier, these are in-progress things, so uh, I hope you listen to this very quickly as soon as we get it up, because <laughs> things are going to change. Um, so let's not talk about the PED situation, because I am literally still working on that, reporting on that, um, and still learning things. Let's talk about what a Florida Sands Will Greer forecast looks like in the SEC East, it, and it, you and I talked about this before we got on the air. Florida was probably going to be projected as having less than a 50% chance, you said, against LSU anyway. Um they're gonna they're, I mean, they're gonna lose this weekend now for sure. I mean, they still have a good defense. That now they're better at defending the pass than the run, I think, and so that only helps you so much against LSU, um, where you have to defend the the run, the run, the run, the run, and then maybe the pass. But yeah, I mean, looking at their win probability stuff that I just pulled up, they've got they're at forty seven percent for this week because I mean they are, they do rank ahead of LSU. Their, their defense definitely ranks ahead of LSU, um, and they're at forty seven percent. Despite with Greer, you know, since I I don't make any adjustments at all for injuries or anything like that because I don't know how yet. Um, against Georgia, because Georgia has looked so terrible over the last two weeks, suddenly they're forty first in my rankings. So they were Florida was at seventy seven percent to beat them, um, and and as I put it on study hall today, like uh, you know, this is Joe Boo and and Serrano at this point with me and Georgia. Like, yeah, I good to you, Georgia. I stick up for you. Um, and it doesn't really ever pay off, but that, you know, then they've got Vanderbilt, they've got South Carolina, they got FAU, uh, and then they got Florida state, which because it's at home, they kind of get the, a little bit of an edge there. So, I mean, it's certainly, 
you know, if they were to have beaten LSU this weekend, they would be looking really, really good to to be to welcome Florida State uh, at eleven and zero. Um, if if this does hurt their odds against LSU and Georgia, then that changes a whole lot, though. So we'll see. It really was an. I think we're going to look back and realize how open how open the window was for Florida, how how substantial the lead they had built in the East. You know, Georgia having lost to Tennessee entering this weekend, but um, this is it's not devastating because I guess I mean Florida's bowl eligible and undefeated right now, which is are two things we didn't think we'd be talking about at all in October. Um, Everyone has seen. I think. I think we're all sort of convinced that McIlwain's um, ability as a head coach is is uh, applicable to Florida's success. The offense is working, et cetera, so forth. This was just sort of an unforeseen situation. This is. I guess what I'm saying is I'm hedging on just coming out and say, well, this this isn't a must champ thing, and I, and I don't think it is. I don't think this has anything to do. It was last week's episode where we started talking about intangibles and curses and theories and people being resigned to sort of mystic fates. Which, by the way, I'll bring up really quickly. Um, I think Dabo put Clemsoning to bed on Saturday, um, both both on the field and then uh, in the post game presser. Dabo, not the most eloquent of speakers. <laughs> not, not it's not really he's he's not going to like you know uh, provide a sort of insightful philosophical take on on this world that we're in in college football. But I mean, he ripped the concept of fait accompli a new one. Well, it was funny with Dabo, like yesterday I wrote about Clemson and um, Jason and I for a while, we were talking about like uh, title, potential titles with, you know, Clemson and involved, but kind of not, you know, kind of making fun of it a little bit. Uh, but uh, Jason first and then me too, like we, we were too, we were still a little scared to go too far on it. So I think in my tweet, I even said something like, you know, Clemson it's, it's over for now. Or, you know, for now, Clemson uh, has uh, completely redefined that because he put the idea of them losing this weekend to whoever it is, NC State, right in my head, and I couldn't get it out. Um, but only one Clemson fan complained about that, and everybody else was just happy to, you know, because I used the words Clemson and number one in the same piece, uh, that kind of distracted everybody from my massive hedge. You know, that or just people are used to me hedging because it's what I do. BC, well, they're playing I mean, BC this weekend, then Miami, then NC State, and they could, you know, that all, all three of those teams bring something to the table that could fluster Clemson if suddenly they start turning the ball over or something. I, I really don't know what Clemson team I saw at Notre Dame two weeks ago because I think the rain changed. I mean, the offensive and defensive coaches both said you know, in, in their in their ways without just coming out and, and admitting something because no coordinator ever wants to do that. But the rain affected the game plan. The rain affected the play calling. And then I think in certain ways, Clemson got so conservative because of the situation they were in. Also all the players, all the players talked about the week of, and then after the game was the perception of Notre Dame. So I think there was a certain psychology at work. What I'm saying is that was a very unique circumstance. So the team I saw against Notre Dame, I don't know if I saw like 2015 Clemson. I think I saw a team that was uniquely prepared for a a very unique uh, game. So and Notre Dame was relentless. They keep, they kept yeah. figuring out a way to get the ball one more time and come back. And Clemson, you know, just barely, but they kept making the plays they needed to make. And then, I mean, Georgia Tech, they're also, you know, all Georgia teams disappoint me this year, apparently. But um, they are not what I expected them to be, but I still think they're pretty decent. And Clemson just whooped them. Like, it could have been so much worse than 43-24. 
So, um, I mean, I've seen what I need to see from them. Now, the next thing I need to see is just, you know, more of it. Now, they gotta, they're, they're going to be uh, this weird kind of favorite, but not, like, definite favorite uh, against BC, Miami, and NC State. And, you know, now they just have to prove that they can keep it up and win these games, too, I guess. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to plug in the numerical before we move on to Maryland, South Carolina, and USC. Um, because, look, if you listen to this show, you probably want a, a note or two about Conference USA. Um, you've got a, you've got an item in here about the consistency of uh, Brandon Dowdy at Western Kentucky and the success that they've had. Let me go back. I think I said this a couple weeks ago, but I'll just go ahead and say it for sure. No one has ever benefited from Bobby Petrino coming to and then leaving a program like Western Kentucky has. Yeah. It is unbelievable. Willie Taggart, I would say he's probably on the hotter side of the hot seat right now in South Florida. He had limited success. Really built the program out of nothing. But what one year with Petrino was able to do uh, by the gentleman's agreement of, uh, of leaving Brom there as sort of the head coach in right. waiting or, the, you know, however whatever the verbiage was to, to designate that, it worked. No, I mean, that, that was the I, one I, school... Do you think it was because it was only one year? Yeah, well, I don't know. It, it's, it, it really defies logic, and I, I railed against Western Kentucky at the time and just looked at sort of the wake that he had left at all those schools. Because at the time, like, Arkansas was still smoking. And oh, now, yeah. you have, now you have a, a, a group of five team that is as good as, as any in the nation. Well, when they hired him, when I wrote that that first Western Kentucky preview in the offseason, I think I basically said that, you know, okay, fine, you hired him. As long as you have an idea for who you're replacing him with, then it's great. You'll get a little bit of a boost because he tends to coach teams well, and you'll get a boost for that, and as you know he's going to leave. And so if you have a plan for that in place, then great, you're you're set. And, um, and then, like, the next year, Louisville hires him, and I just rail against Louisville for hiring him. Um, but, you know, that's... I guess the difference in mid-major versus major or something. But, no, they looked fantastic. I ended up watching simply because it was entertaining. And, and you know, Texas-Oklahoma was was kind of morbidly entertaining, but it wasn't just purely, holy crap, look at this offense entertaining. It was a very I, slow, slow-developing car wreck. Yeah. <laughs> Extremely slow-developing car wreck. And, and you kind of don't believe that the – you know, the SUV is able to flip over in the end and set on fire. But, uh, you know, Oklahoma's defense, they they provided that fire. But, I mean, so I ended up watching a good portion of that Western Kentucky first half. And, I mean, they, that was that was every bit as much of a name-your-score kind of experience as Baylor-Kansas was. They could have scored whatever they wanted to. And, and the, the only reason they only scored, I think it was 52 in the first half, was they seemed to kind of let up a little bit after they accidentally recovered an onside kick because a squib hit a, a middle Tennessee player and they recovered. They didn't seem completely committed to trying to score at that point, and they kind of eased up. Uh, and then they took it easy in the second half, but... Yeah, I mean, Western Kentucky is everything Baylor is at the moment in terms of just name your point total and we'll go hit it. So I'm really, it is, like, in ter- I wrote that in the numerical. This is going to be a fascinating group of five races. Because first of all, there are legitimately good teams here. It's not like, you know, Boise State's a top 40 team and everybody else kind of stinks. Um, I mean, in F-plus this week, Navy, Boise, and Western Kentucky are all top 30. Toledo's 35th. You got Louisiana Tech at 45, Temple at 46 undefeated, Houston at 50 undefeated, Memphis is almost not even in the top 10 for Group of Five, and they're undefeated. And and you know you get the impression that they will their defense can play about as well as it needs to, uh, and it just hasn't really needed to yet. 
But um, no, there there are a lot of really really interesting teams, and 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 one representative from every conference conference pretty much. Sun Belt, I guess, doesn't have one in that top ten, but Appalachian State's pretty good. So Navy yet to play Memphis, yet to play Houston, um, yet to play Tulsa. So some of this will start shaking itself out. I was at Houston. I did two games this week. I was at Houston and SMU on Thursday night. Um, Houston looked uh, they looked apart. They looked apart. I, I would sort of, I would pick them to win the AAC right now over uh, Memphis, but not by much. I think their defense is a little bit incrementally better, at least capable of, of solving problems in game, which I really haven't seen from Memphis. It's just more kind of a consistent keep the pace. Right. You know, last last team with possession wins, whereas I've seen adjustments in games from Houston's defense. Not incredibly talented, but uh, really well coached, really good staff. Um so what we'll do next is let's just talk about South Carolina, Southern Cal, Maryland as jobs, okay? Uh, because the three circumstances around those recent openings are um, incredibly unique from one another. Um, I think probably the only one I really saw coming was, I mean, Edsel, Edsel felt inevitable. I don't know about in-season, and uh, and Spurrier was something that has been talked about for the last year and a half, two years in the in the SEC. But again, I don't know if it was. I, I didn't expect him to walk out midseason. But you know, it's, it's I, if you read Spencer Hall's piece on Tuesday, it, it doesn't seem that surprising. No, when it like I, I wasn't predicting it. Like okay, any day now he's going to retire. But the moment it happened, I'm like, yep, that made perfect sense that he would do it immediately because he's exactly the person that would go. Well, don't have it anymore. Time to leave. And. um you know, I saw Stuart Mandel um, tweeted this morning something to the effect of, you know, you, you, we, you know we, that he has a lot of cred with the media that he can just leave and nobody's calling him a quitter and all that. Well, first of all, people call him quitters because the Internet exists and you can find whatever you're looking for in that regard. Um, but I, I think this is more fair, honestly. And, and I like Spurrier. I enjoy Spurrier. So maybe it's just me being biased. But if you know you don't have it, why wait? Why, uh, you know, <laughs> George O'Leary doesn't appear to have it at the moment, and he's he he uh, he does not he's not quitting. Um, but you know, uh, if if you know you don't have it, and you think somebody else might, then I don't see why it's quitting on your team to try to do them a favor and get somebody who really still wants to be there uh, in the head spot. Dooley, uh, Chiswick, and Nutt um, all had kind of uh, real burnout last seasons. I think it hurt each one of those programs to drag it out that long in terms of recruiting and speculation and morale yeah. with the team. I think it didn't hurt so much the future of the program as it did the, the immediacy and that like the kids on the active roster, how apathetic things got. It also hurts things like ticket sales and renewals and marketing. Um, it depends on how lame a duck you get. And, and if Spurrier felt like he was just going to be that detached from it, you know, a month from now, then yeah, I guess good on him. I don't. I don't really view it as as being a quitter or being a winner. I think it's a, there, there's infinitely more shades of gray. <laughs> so the question I get, and um, I've got to do some radio this afternoon, and I know you do too, um, is what job? People ask about open jobs in college football as if there's a, a ranking system assigned to every position. Um, I think that comes from from when we say things like Texas is the best job in America. Well, what does that actually mean? We break it down by opportunity recruiting finance facilities all this stuff right 
you can say that about a handful of jobs. You may be able to say that um, in a particular conference, X school is the best job. Where you get into trouble, I think, is trying to look at, okay, your coach, your coach X, all right? So you're Justin Fuente. You're Tom Herman. Um, you're, you're a coach. Hell, you're Brian Kelly. I mean, he's, his name's been thrown in with the USC mix already. You're, you're being mentioned with all these open jobs. It's not so much that there's this um, uh, singular ranking of, of the, 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 I don't know, worthiness or the potential for success with, with these jobs that applies to every single available candidate. It's very much about matchmaking. That's, it's, it, no one likes to hear this answer. They say, oh, what's a better job right now, USC or Texas? That was a question I got during yeah. that slide. Well, it doesn't really work that way. My first question when people would ask me that, I said, well, where's the coach from? Because when I, if I'm the coach and not the athletic director or whoever's at the hiring committee, however they want to structure it, if I'm the coach, I'm looking at what do I know about that area? What's my staff going to look like? And what kind of connections do we have in recruiting? Because I thought it was really telling that Spurrier said on Tuesday, you know, the recruiting is sort of the reason that this, the game has passed him by. You know, he, because he made his bones as a, as a tactician, as someone who innovated and changed the actual on-field play, he was, I mean, he was never, uh, you know, uh, Gus Malzahn recruiter or Hugh Freeze recruiter. Like, he just doesn't fit the mold of this this new young proto-coach in the Southeastern Conference or, you know, or these guys that we're talking about, like Herman and Fuente right now that are so red hot. It's just the furthest thing from Steve Spurrier. Um, so I think I would look at region first. I would look at um, the connections you have. And I think the second thing that you would look at is commitment, which is, sounds like a, a press conference cliche. But I've had coaches tell me that, hey, when we talk about the commitment from the school, here's what we actually mean. What they usually mean is what's the operating budget for the football team, okay? Are you – if you get a wild hair and decide that you're going to send a piece of correspondence or a tweet uh, or, or a Snapchat that you need monitored by a staffer, if you're going to send mail every day to, to recruits every single day, which is what I had a coach tell me this weekend, that that's what he wants to do for every prospect for the next three years, is that every single day they are contacted by School X. Is the money there for that? Um, do you have a football facilities building? Does it need revamping? Does it have touchscreens in the locker? That's the kind of stuff that they look at as commitment, not like a president who sits down and says, man, we really want to win football games. Go team. That there's it's way more specific and intricate than that and coaches being more 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 micromanagers they want to see that up front and if it's not there they want to see a hard commitment towards that in the near future so that that i would say is number two now number three seems to change after that people say oh you know money it's kind of funny bill you would be surprised i think people would be surprised how money doesn't really seem to ever come up initially when a coach is looking at a job there's just an assumption that if you take sort of a job at a power five school or a job at a top 25 school you know the money's going to be there these guys are way more concerned with winning so i think maybe number three if i had to make a universal number three for the coaches i talked to it's what's the timeline on winning going to look like and that comes in with a commitment is this a five-year build is this a rehab is this a never is this a never happened before um and so then you start looking at all these things, and suddenly schools become very different for the very different individuals that each coaches are. I don't know if that makes sense. No, yeah, and, and it's I struggle with this topic because I look at at these jobs in a in like the reverse um, way. I, I tend to look at it as you know like 
the top tier job, the best jobs are the one where if they make a good high, a, a great hire tomorrow, they're winning national titles. They're coming really close very quickly. So <laughs> Michigan, for instance, uh, USC qualifies in that regard. Obviously, Florida, Alabama, Ohio State, etc. All those top schools, if they make a great hire tomorrow, they're set. Um, whereas uh, Maryland, if they make a great hire, if they locate the next Urban Meyer and they hire him tomorrow, what can they win? What is their Maybe they can compete for a national title uh, occasionally, or or that maybe they can compete one for one until they lose him to one of the top tier jobs, or you know anything like that. It's hard for me to to take like the just the generic Tom Herman style uh, candidate and say which job would he think is better, South Carolina or Maryland. You know, uh, I, I think the answer is South Carolina, but I I mean that's. That I, you could easily craft an argument that that your school is better than others within that same tier. So, um, I would say for Tom, neither one of those schools seems like a great fit in the long term. And I could also probably sit here and find a way without stretching too hard to show show maybe that maybe Maryland is more set up for success. Um, I will say of these three schools that have come open since we've last done a podcast, um, <laughs> USC is a is a different beast entirely. But when you talk about Maryland and South Carolina, there's a couple similarities in that they're overshadowed in competitive conferences. Um, they don't have the kind of history that they need to compete against uh, local large rivals. And geographically, they have to fight their, their asses off in recruiting. Um, there's going to be a ton of money that comes in from the Big Ten Network and a ton of money that comes in from the SEC Network. Um, at Maryland, you've got Kevin Plank, um, who's the, I'm sorry, the founder of Under Armour, who is we all sort of think is going to become that Phil Knight type um, program defining mega booster the next couple of years. Um, and then in South Carolina, you have a school that sold out every home game in, in I think two years of what was it? 14 or uh, South Carolina fans by screaming at me. They, they went unfeated for two years, I think. And, uh, and they sold out every game in the process. So there's definitely a commitment there. Um, there are a lot of challenges. I can't sit here. And, if you threw out names to me right now, I would probably give it and, and ask which school is better. It, it would really would depend on the candidate. But for the top guys, the hot names that, that I, I've heard of, I don't know if any of them are necessarily a perfect fit. Maryland's a little bit more intriguing to me. Only, And I don't mean it's a better or worse job. I mean that Maryland is an undefined property. Right. Um, I could tell you how to win at South Carolina. I think you would have to – pull off something a little bit more wholesale with Maryland in the scheduling, the branding, the recruiting territory. I think the recruiting in Virginia is going to be affected by what Frank Beamer does in terms of how long he stays at Virginia Tech. Um, it looks like Mike London's going to be fired from Virginia. That is a fertile, fertile area, probably the most fertile for Maryland to go into in terms of, uh, of local. If you hire the right guy, Right now, you get a jump on that over the next two cycles at least. So um, I would focus on that first. With South Carolina, it's redundant to say in the SEC that you need a recruiter. I think at South Carolina, you may take a modified Mike Leach approach of, of bringing something completely different into a conference where you're competing against Goliaths. Because I don't know if you're going to outwork or outbrand or outmarket or outappeal Georgia or Florida anytime soon. And then I also think with the success that Butch Jones has had recruiting the east side of the SEC footprint, he's going to be a problem. You, you may look at doing something a little bit more unique in terms of how you appeal to kids with the actual football product. Um, which job would you take right now? 
your head coach? Um, well, it is potential versus like, uh, you know, co- there's such an extra level of competition involved with that South Carolina job. The Maryland one, I think, would be very intriguing, but I would have to to be very much at peace and have a very good answer for. Okay, well, this is you know all this potential in the world, such great potential, potential, potential. Why haven't they won yet? What has? Mm-hmm. Why haven't they? What has held them back, and what makes me coming in any different? Uh, now, if you're a coach, that means you've probably been really good at your job for a long time, and or if you're a coach who's being considered for this job, uh, you probably have a you know a pretty high opinion of the job you could do, and maybe you don't need to uh, know as clearly. Uh, you know, why potential hasn't turned into production yet because, you know, I'll turn it into production. It's all good. But, right. no, if you had that and South Carolina coming at you, uh, you know, before I took Maryland too seriously, I would need to get a really good read for why nobody else has been able to make it work like like we all think it can work at this point. Yeah, I think Maryland is more a case of showing promise and potential. South Carolina can state fact a little easier. Um, and, and I don't buy entirely into the whole ceiling theory. Um talking more about South Carolina, the SEC has proven now in the last couple of years, it, it, it's shifting a lot more and we're seeing more fluidity than we ever have. I mean, I, I've watched hiring, you know, uh, like hiring storylines at places like Mississippi state and Ole Miss. And to see the difference in those programs in a couple of years, really hell just to see the difference in South Carolina since before Sprayer got there. I mean, it, there were a lot of people that thought he would flame out entirely, and so just that he's shown the potential, and it's been it's been reinforced by the university itself. I think I would I think I would take South Carolina, which I, I feel like it would be easier to win faster at Maryland, but I don't know about the long term there again because we haven't seen it. Yeah, is and, that fair to say? And I mean, we talk about you know recruiting uh, competition for South Carolina and whatnot, but I mean. Maryland kind of has Penn State and Ohio State and all those teams right there. So oh yeah, without um, a doubt. When I was at the Penn State spring game this this uh, in April, um, I had a, a, like a bizarre number. I just did a blind poll as I walked through the tunnels of like who's your big rival? Because I didn't like who do you hate? And like I got a bunch of really colorful limericks about like Pitt, but uh, more people said Maryland than any other uh, Big Ten school, which I thought was really weird. I think they they. They know that Maryland thinks that, that they can catch Penn State, and um, I think that really annoys them. That's the and, best uh, the best answer I can come up with. By the way, the second team, again, unofficial straw poll people have been drinking, uh, was Rutgers. Kind of weird. But hmm. this brings up an interesting point to me. If you're able to compete against and beat Penn State and Rutgers in that little quadrant of the new Big Ten, I think that I think over time, as Maryland develops an identity in the Big Ten, that could buy you a lot of equity, because no one's going to expect you in the next ten years to regularly compete with and dominate uh, Michigan or Ohio State. But if you're able to win the region inside the division, I think that could go a long way. Oh yeah, it does suck that they're in that division, though. Uh, not that they, you know, not that they could do anything about that geographically, but. Um... Like an awesome hire in the Big Ten West. Granted, recruiting's different. You, you know, you don't have the same access to the Maryland, Virginia kids and whatnot. Uh, but an awesome hire in the Big Ten West could could kind of dominate, at least be consistently making the Big Ten title game. Um, mm-hmm. And now you're just hoping to get past Ohio State once. 
Here's what I will say. Maryland, we don't know. We don't really know what it is. We don't know what to do with it. Maybe um, I would take the Maryland job over any of the other jobs we thought would be open. Illinois, um, we thought Indiana was going to be open. It may not be. Um, Purdue, anything in the West, I would take it over Minnesota. I would take it over. I think I would take the Maryland job over Nebraska. And I'm not trying to develop a hot take there, but when I look at just the hard analytics of this situation. I think there you can find success in a in a four to seven year run right now with what Maryland offers more so than what Nebraska offers. It's funny because I've spent the last five days in Texas around Big 12 fans and Nebraska came up more than I thought it would, mainly because they're sort of laughing at what Nebraska has become in the Big Ten. Nebraska was very reliant. You know this. They were very reliant on recruiting in Oklahoma and Texas, and they went from sharing a division on the north side of a very fertile territory to being on the southwest side of a very large, profitable, um, you know, aggressive, future-minded institution in the Big Ten, and all oh, the academics and all. This. They like where they, they lost so much in recruiting in, in terms of identity that I think it's really going to hurt them for a long time. Well, my counter to that would be that it kind of gets back to the one higher away theory too. Like Bo Pelini, well, I mean, first of all, like Ndama Kinsu is from what, Oregon? Um, you know, they, they, they've still been able to recruit somewhat as a national brand, at least in specific instances. But I mean, I think Nebraska's biggest problem right now, they don't have a top, you know, you would have to hire, uh, you, you would have to make an amazing hire to get them back into like a top five level program, obviously. But I think their biggest issue right now is that Pelini peaked. We we knew what Pelini was going to deliver, and they decided that wasn't good enough. And then they hired Mike Riley. I, I mean, maybe that work. Maybe that still works out. But we're halfway through the first his first season, uh, and a lot of the issues that we thought might pop up have popped up. So um, I, I I don't like jumping on the bandwagons where it's it's all foreboding, but. Like I, you know, I interviewed Jerry DiNardo this spring. He said basically the same thing. Is what is Nebraska going to be? How is it going to define itself in recruiting? How is it going to appeal to these kids? How is it going to work around, you know, depending on the future of the satellite camp legislation? Um, I don't really didn't mean to turn this into a Nebraska, a Nebraska topic, but I think right now I would go to Maryland because I can see finite proof of proof of potential is that a real thing like i can see things i can work with i know i can go into philadelphia baltimore i can go into newport news area i could i could go down to the carolinas i want if i wanted to i think that side is more friendly to what they're doing and look if under armor serious let's get stupid let's (laughs) let's seriously let's build a glass spaceship phil did you know um but let's get stupid let's start branding in you know in the media markets in like dc fair game don't do anything as naive and stupid as Rutgers saying they're the team in New York City, but <laughs> start preying upon that. To me, that's a hell of a lot more appealing. And, and, and a young 36 to 45-year-old coach, I think, would agree with me. You could, start, you could come in and within two days put, start laying hands on that kind of stuff on the PR and the marketing recruiting side. I don't know if you could do that in Nebraska. It's different. Now, Nebraska has already – the brand is set. Um and uh, you know, again, with the right coach, or with the uh, a great hire, they could, you know, 
be more than they are now. But yeah, if you're looking to kind of establish your own footprint for a program, then yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly a case for Maryland there. I I would still get tripped up on why hasn't this worked before, but you know, Under Armour is still, I guess, is still a relatively new development. I think they just haven't. I mean, honestly, I I don't think Edsel. It's hard to say if like Edsel beat Franklin or, or one way or the other in re, in recruiting those areas because it, we just didn't get enough time. Right. But I I, I think it, for Maryland to be successful, you need dominant recruiting in the region, and I don't think Edsel was able to provide dominant recruiting. Um, so let's let's shift off of Maryland and Nebraska because you know everyone's talking about Maryland and Nebraska. Um, uh, when we start applying what we do to, to USC. Um, I'll pitch it to you. What is there a way to to build a numerical perspective on the problem this year? You know, and I'm not saying apply X rumor about Steve Sarkeesian to a Y result, but like, is there is there a way to to show this in numbers? What a disappointment this has been. Well, they're kind of on paper. They kind of look like Georgia did last year. Um, and that they showed that they could play at a high level. Even now, like F, you, you know, I, I understand not everybody worships the ground that F plus walks on, but right now USC is number seven. Like that's, that's how good they've looked in their, in their three wins, first of all. And, and, you know, they get a lot of credit because they didn't play terribly against Stanford. I think now we can look back on Stanford and realize, well, hell, Stanford's pretty damn good. Um, they just, you know, Stanford played a little better that day. It was a toss up game that Stanford, uh, ended up winning, and that was fine. But when I wrote about this on on Friday in a piece that was massively outdated, forty eight hours later, um, what what I what what was confusing to me was that there wasn't a formula to the losses they've suffered under Sarkeesian. You know, they couldn't stop the option. Uh, you know, Justin Wilcox defense couldn't stop the option against Bo- uh, Boston College. They were beating a good Arizona State team and suddenly played the worst Hail Mary defense in the history of the of college football. They, um, you know, the, against Utah, they, you know, that was a game that they, maybe from a pure talent perspective or overall quality perspective they should have had put away. Uh, but they kind of messed around and they just kind of, they, they failed offensively and defensively late in the in the Utah game. Well, they failed offensively and defensively against UCLA, too. But then against Stanford, the offense looked great. Uh, The defense fell apart. Against Washington, the defense looked fine, and the offense fell apart. So, you know, you can't really just point to this is why they're not closing. They were just kind of flaky. And, you know, that's a a tricky word to use. Um, But if your coach isn't, you know, I don't know the best way to put this, but I mean, it, that's, that sometimes is an issue with certain, certain teams uh, and to, to, you know, avoid going down the alcohol road. It's kind of the same thing with Mark Rick's team. They look great and then suddenly they don't, and then they look great and then they don't for a different reason. And um, I mean, this kind of reminds me why I would never actually want to be a coach, but no, I, I know there hasn't been a reason other than they've just been kind of flaky, just like they kind of were uh, with Kiffin. I think it's going to take a certain kind of individual to come in, and, and it, it depends largely on whether or not Pat Hayden is still there. Um, we know all the things, I mean, the talents there, the, the the brand of USC. Oh, yeah, we get it. We get it. That's one of the reasons why they the hype machine gets gets you know so nauseating on the Trojans. Um, 
I just don't know if they. I don't know if USC is ready. Just from talking to people in the in, in the industry, if they're ready to apply a wholesale change to to how they how they run athletics, to how they run football. Um, Probably not if Pat Hayden is still making the calls. If Pat, to me, if Pat Hayden's there, they are. Uh, I wouldn't laugh if there was some. If there was a third consecutive Pete Carroll assistant hire, I don't know who the hell that would be, but it wouldn't be the most shocking thing in the world to me because of they, they just seem obsessed with trying to recreate an era that's that's long gone and it's, I don't think could be recreated. And and I think that college football has changed enough um, since Carroll was dominant with USC to where they wouldn't have the same success if they followed it. You know. Um, uh, letter by letter, I just think times have changed enough. We we see this all the time, and coaches even talk about, hey, what we did to be successful. When you talk to coaches that have been at programs for more than a decade, they'll admit that if they had success in their first two or three years, and they're still having success in their ninth or tenth year, there's been a lot of change in that time. So this idea of chasing this ghost of what Pete Carroll did 10, 15 years ago, I mean, this is what got them in this situation again. Rocky, so, Rocky Cito, or I guess that's how you say his last name, the his D coordinator, uh, his last year at USC, and now he's with the Seahawks. There's there's a Carolite uh, for you. He he played. I mean, it. Billy, you joke, but like, I'm I'm like I'm saying this having talked to coaches. Like, no one expects them to go with a yeah. bolt sharp outsider. Like, uh, if they did call, you know, if you made a top ten hot names in in coaching right now, be they head coaches or assistants or whatever. I don't know anybody who said, oh, yeah, well, the, the, no one expects USC to make a smart hire. That's what I'm trying to say <laughs> in terms of possible. And that's insane because we do know what that program can be. And we also know this. The Pac-12 really needs them. They really, really need them right now. Um, it, it's a branding issue. It's I, feel, I swear I feel like I've said brands 20 times today. It's, it's, a, it's how the Pac-12 is – feels like it needs to present themselves to the rest of the United States is to have the stronger institution from Los Angeles be at the forefront. And it doesn't look like we're going to get that anytime soon. As bad as things are in Oregon right now, I would expect Oregon to right the ship in a much, much shorter amount of time. I mean, all, I mean, all they need is, uh, going to fire Don Pelham and fix it. Well, right. Yeah. Fire Don Pelham and, and figure out your quarterback situation and you're back in the top 10 almost. But, um, no, the the USC has always been interesting to me because they have put such a massive premium on, well, aside from Lane Kiffin, I guess. It, like their hires have just been really interesting. Like they've never, unless you uh, include Kiffin, who was tied to Carroll, young up and comers don't get this job. Like they hired Larry Smith in 1987, um, and and granted, I didn't really get to know Larry Smith's personality until a decade later when I was at Missouri and he, and well, and he was at Missouri. Um, but he, he, even when he was a young, a young up and comer, he wasn't young, but you know, they hired Larry Smith. They rehired John Robinson. They hired Paul Hackett. And they, I mean, Pete Carroll was a two time retread, but uh, you know, it worked and that's awesome. But it was still like the same approach that, that, that kind of failed them repeatedly. And then, yeah, since then, they hired Kiffin, and then when Kiffin didn't work out, they hired uh, a, a Carolite who had been, then at that point had five years of coaching experience. So, you know, I guess Fuente's on year four now, but in terms of, like, the young up-and-comers, like, who, you know, Herman's only been a head coach one year. If that's really a criterion that you're going to use here, 
I, I mean, maybe that's why everybody's saying Brian Kelly. I don't know. I don't see any of the younger coaches that I think are the the hires I would make. I, I, I'm going to pull someone out of that, that group in the AAC and, and try and find an innovator, someone who's younger, more energetic, who's going to recruit better for a decade plus. I don't think USC would pull anybody out of that group, no. which is insane to think about because you've, they could have a, like a young dynamic presence for the next 15 years. And they're just not thinking, I think you, they're going to pull, like you said, someone that's, I guess, I mean, it's not like Sark had a great resume, but he, I guess, you know, he had an F, he had a power five FBS resume. I mean, come on, let's let's not kid ourselves. They, they hired him because he, he worked for Pete. So. Well, right, he definitely, and I always kind of defended his resume because, you know, they did go from 0-12 to 7-6 and in two years, and they did have a top-20 team on paper. They, you know, lost a couple close games and therefore only finished with nine wins in, in 2013. But, I mean, I, I, I thought he did a decent job. My my thing with, with Sarkeesian was always that he was, okay, fine, he's decent, he's solid. You can do better than decent or solid at USC. No, you should be doing the best. You should be, you should be competing with with really anybody at any given point in time. And that's what I don't understand. That these hires have look. I have to say this because I, like I have to to put an asterisk next to this and say this. This is apropos of the drinking, and, and maybe it isn't because we're learning now that the drinking was like a systemic problem. And and there's there's evidence from Washington. As long as he's been a head coach, this has seemed to be around him. So maybe it isn't. But when he got hired, I, I don't know, maybe heard a rumor once about his drinking, but like I, I could say that about 30 other head coaches right now. So when he got hired, I thought it was a terrible hire. Not because we now know he's an alcoholic, but because he was never consistent enough of a winner at Washington to seem to merit taking the USC job. Right, this other thing tripped him up before simply being an inconsistent head coach tripped him up. Yeah, Which, this was when, a ba- when I wrote on Friday, I wrote on Friday like this is you know clearly this it probably isn't going to work out for him, for Sarkeesian and it had nothing to do with alcohol. Um, no. It had to do with just inconsistent results. Yeah, I mean, I if you take one or two incidents out of this, I think we're you know, and he's still there. We're still saying this today. But let's apply it. I know it's so salacious and I know some of the, the stuff that's out there right now and we don't know what's what's valid and what's agenda driven and what's just spe- speculation or outright fabricated but let's do, let's do a little mental exercise. Let's pretend that he doesn't allegedly show up at the offices drunk on s- Sunday, okay? So he still has the job. And all we're talking about is a head coach of a team that just lost to Washington, second loss of the year, second loss in the conference. I feel like we'd be saying the exact, the exact same things. Yeah, pretty I, much. I don't think this. I don't think the alcohol really changed anything. No, I mean I have proof. Uh, you know, just read the thing I wrote on Friday before it, this all. Because yeah, th- these rumors were around for a long time. When when the uh, the thing in August happened, um, it, it, it surprised almost nobody. Um, so clearly that was floating around out there, but what I wrote on Friday and, and anything results-based, he was already in massive, massive trouble, and, and it was going to be a situation at the end of the year where if he wasn't fired, then they'd come after Hayden anyway, and, and now they're kind of coming after Hayden to some degree, although uh, it sounds like the president still you know loves Hayden, so maybe Hayden's safe. I, I mean, who knows? But, yeah, no, I mean, we, this just sped up the process. We were going to be talking about this in two months regardless. 
it's insane right now. We have we kind of have to get to what we're looking for this weekend because we both have to run. But we haven't talked about Charlie Strong. We haven't talked about Texas. We haven't talked about Leonard Fournette and LSU. Um, we haven't really gotten to speak on Steve Spurrier, the person, the coach. Um, it's just been that kind of news cycle. So this is also why we did not solicit for your reader questions this week. Um, what are you watching this weekend? I know you will not be tailgating, right? So you're at home in front of the TV. I will be off the road for the first time um, because I, ha- I caught two games this weekend. I'm working on uh, two special assignments right now, and I've begged away the mercy of my bosses, and I will get to veg out, watch TV on a good weekend. I'm super excited. Yeah, what are you yeah. watching? We have an absurd number of, of undefeated teams. I'm going to talk about this for my uh, piece tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a crazy number of undefeated teams here through six weeks, and on Sunday we might have like half as many. A ton of them could lose, uh, and that's good. We need a little bit of straightening out. We've been, you know, for our selection committee stuff, we've been uh, insinuating that there are still like 9, 10, 12, 14, whatever many schools with a decent case to be included in the top four. At some point, we need to, you know, we are reaching the second half of October here. At some point, we need to cut those down, and I think we're going to start seeing that this weekend. Um, UCLA-Stanford's an elimination game right off the bat on Thursday. Um, Yeah, that's the other funny thing we we didn't mention. How jacked up is is the playoff four? It's still terrible. We still don't know what's going on. And I, I mean, I think because we do this every year, like from week one, it's part of the that process. But yeah, we are through six weeks here, and, and nothing is even slightly clear. I don't think that that's. I, it feels like that's a little different than normal. But um, no, I mean, in terms of resolutions, you've got Stanford, UCLA, you've got Iowa Northwestern, um, which kind of might decide the Big Ten West. Um, you've got Baylor playing a team with a pulse, even if West Virginia is pretty demoralized at the moment. Uh, you've got Ole Miss Memphis. This is like the best slate of 11 a.m. Central Time games you could ask for. You, Absolutely. And then you've got Alabama A&M. You've got basically my answer is I'm going to be watching all of these because yeah. I am at home. And my only real task on Saturday is going to be doing some leaves and fixing the gasket on our big green egg, which melted the last time I cooked pizza. Um, we had to cut the cut open the egg with a putty knife. But I wish this would happen on the podcast. Only not not to put your life in danger, just to compliment the dog poop incident. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, this is, we're, we're keeping it real here. Um, um, so I'm interested in all the good, clean, like, marquee, exciting blockbuster games. Michigan like, State, Michigan, man. Like, yeah, Michigan State, Michigan, Alabama, A&M, Florida, LSU. Oh, it's so awesome. And, like, but I'm also interested in, there's some secret crap in here that I'm real pumped about. Oregon and Washington, real pumped about that. Auburn at Kentucky on Thursday night, real pumped about that. Um, could a crappy Louisville team beat Florida State at 11 a.m.? Real pumped about that. Like, Louisville's not actually that bad. Their, their offense probably isn't good enough, but their defense, you know, they their, their defense is actually really good, I think. Yeah, I know we adhere to the letter of the law and fact and reporting and numbers on this <laughs> show, but yeah, it's Bobby Petrino, so I'm going to slander every chance I get. Um, Oklahoma, Kansas State. I think I think maybe this is sort of the kill shot on Oklahoma if Kansas State plays like they did against TCU. There's a lot of secret fight. Hey, here's one I'm just going to throw out because everyone's going to be pretty much hammered by the, the time this get, this comes on at six or stressed out from one of their bigger games. But look, TCU is going to Iowa State. TCU should win that game. TCU hasn't should won of that game by <laughs> like pretty much all year. And they're my no, I, they're number one in my uh, my little playoff four thing that we do for SB Nation. That's just, I know I, I'm sitting here selling you TCU Iowa State, but that's how great, like, even the C games this weekend are that fun. 
Penn State at Ohio State should not be a contest at all. I think I may, like, we don't do prognostication. I feel like putting some sort of, like, stamp or guarantee on watch like, like watchability. I don't mean fun or good football or good execution. I just mean that something strange is going to happen. You're going to check that out. Yeah, TCU, Iowa State, I wrote, I wrote really briefly this morning that, um, you know, I this is where you know, the playoff race kind of screws this up because I've noticed myself with TCU and Utah basically saying, yeah, in the present tense, those games are a lot of fun and awesome, and they've kind of defined this season so far, and fun, fun, but, you know, they're probably going to lose at some point, and I hate that. I hate catching myself doing that. Um, but when I talked about TCU, I pretty much said, you know, they've, you know, they've already put together two of the, they've been part of two of the best games of the season so far. Um, and, uh, you know, we should celebrate how freaking awesome the last quarter or so of TCU Kansas State was. Um, but then I also had to mention that they were probably going to lose at some point. And then I listed off the big games and I went, wait a second, Iowa State grades out a lot better in my numbers than I kind of thought they were. They're like top 60 now and TCU uh, is going to come and their defense is shaky. And Mark Mangino is the offensive coordinator at Iowa state. And Hmm. So yeah, that, that you can certainly talk yourself into that one. If you want, it probably won't happen, but you know, if it, if it was probably going to happen, then there's not as much reason to pay attention, I guess. Um, ugly coaching situation game of the week. It's a dark horse. Pittsburgh, Georgia tech. How bad is Georgia Tech going to get? Uh, yeah, I I haven't had much of a chance. to. I watched the Notre Dame game, I guess, but these last two losses I haven't really got caught much of, and they're just confusing the hell out of me right now. I don't understand. Like, oh, I have no idea. Was- oh, yeah, I, I didn't even mean to ask you for, like, numerical proof on that. I just I caught part of the Clemson game on, over the weekend, and it I, I just – yeah, was, re- I was really high on this team. Yeah, no, because th- they, they had an amazing offense last year, and they returned almost everybody from it. But now that I think about it, their 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 slot backs um, were pretty young, and I was curious. I think I, one of the things I wrote now that I'm, I'm trying to recall what I wrote in the preview is that we'll find out exactly how valuable slot backs are in that option because all I really notice about them is they average like eight yards a carry. Uh, but they, but Georgia Tech like lost every single one of them, and they returned it the, the line, the quarterback, everybody else. But they were really, really raw at, at slot back, I think. But anywho, yeah, no, that one, I'm really baffled by Georgia Tech this year. Um, uh, I think it's um, I think it's the best top to bottom. It's certainly the best plotted Saturday that we've had. You've got something going from eleven until uh, blacking out. So and, and the Thursday night game is huge, even though I'll be recording it and watching it in the morning because it starts at freaking 930. Um, yeah. You've got Boise State, Utah State on Friday, which nothing Utah State is involved in is actually fun to watch, but it should be interesting. And if Boise State is going to lose again. Uh, Utah State's trying, starting to figure things out, at least defensively. So, yeah, I mean, you've got... BYU Cincinnati on Friday night, it's going to be pointsy. Oh, seriously, I missed that one. Yeah, it's going to be pointsy. Um there's a lot of fun left on the schedule. Again, I, you know, not that I guess we should dedicate more time to like the like like Texas A&M Alabama. To me, that's the must-watch game of the day. Um, I don't know what I can say about it right now. Same goes with Michigan State, Michigan, but there's also just a slew of other good stuff. And it is the the midweek games uh, premiere tonight with Arkansas State South Alabama at Ladd hey, Stadium again. If you're if you're a podcast that ain't played nobody listener and you and you're sort of one of us, you're just as excited about that. Okay, you're just as excited about making an excuse as to why you don't 
want to watch The Good Wife on DVR with your significant other because there's some sweet, sweet Sun Belt on. And the Max and, and the Max actually good this year for when their game starts. So oh, it doesn't even have to be good, Bill. It just has to be in the middle of the week. Well, it, after a while, well, yes, after a while, like I think you know, I, I've been disappointed in the Mac the last couple of weeks because the bar was set so high in like 2012 or 2011, 12, and 2013 and 14. Just those games all sucked. There, there was like one good game, Maxion game each year. Uh, this year, I think we got a lot coming, especially and not only because Bo- Bowling Green is you know very very Mac this year. So I think we I think we're going to be in for a nice entertaining slate of Tuesday Wednesday games. I think we've done it. I think we've made it through a hell of a news cycle. We're What's excited. funny, by the way, is that Auburn plays at six p.m. on Thursday. We did not even mention that game. Death Watch. It's going to be fun. I think this is this could be the hey this could be the game that that uh, that puts Mark Stoops in a lot of hiring conversations if they win this one. Because that's a short-term life cycle in Kentucky. Ain't nobody trying to build a 10-win dynasty year after year at Kentucky. Ain't going to happen. Not when you're recruiting like you're Ohio State. Not as good as Ohio State like you actually live in the state of Ohio. Right. Um, all right, Bill. I feel like we, we did what we could. And, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll be back. And, and there'll probably be 13 or 14 more things to talk about. Because um, I, I feel like we're in sort of like a crisis of two worlds in which the planet offseason and the planet in season have merged and so we have football and crazy storyline things to talk about all at once so i hope yeah. we did hope we did I, okay. I wasn't i wasn't impressed with all this crap coming up on a monday during the season that, that that's was, what i'm I saying i did not like that at all we have football things to talk about. hopefully we can just come back and talk about like super good like 20 super good football things next week and not legacies and alcoholism I'm I'm scanning uh twitter and our slack room just to make sure nothing else has popped up in the time it's taken us to Someone's um, dead. Let's see. So we've got Greg Sankey coming out and uh, saying he talked to Brett Bielema about um, <laughs> about Bielema going full heel and flopping uh, for, and drawing an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty from the sideline. 200% condone all actions committed by Brett Bielema last week. feel like we need more of that. Yeah, like that was – direct... it is amazing to watch when somebody embraces their heel reputation. It's, it's spectacular. Um, but that looks like maybe about it, other than um, Darius Rucker coming out and thanking Steve Spurrier for his support or for his quality work at South Carolina. It appears nothing has actually exploded in the time it took us to do this podcast. Well, I'd like to come out. I'd like to end it on this and thank Darius Rucker for his quality work on Cracked Review. Hey, man, that made my 1996. That's what I'm saying. Five. Five? Uh, five and six, really. Yeah, that's All true. Right. It was like a year and a half straight. Let's go, let's go do some radio interviews separate of one another, and we shall reconvene. Sounds good.